Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, a large collaborative research network between Keras and many academic institutions across the country, collaborating on precision medicine research, biomarker research, with the ultimate goal of advancing the way we take care of patients with cancer, hoping that their outcomes continue to improve daily with precision medicine and personalized care. We continue our series with ASCO 2021 updates. As you know, ASCO has been was virtual this year in 2021, but we've had several uh, faculty members that have joined me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast to discuss some of the updates that have really more of a clinical relevance in the way we take care of patients. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Charu Agrawal, from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Agrawal is the Leslie M. Heisler Associate Professor for Lung Cancer Excellence. And uh, uh, really, she is an active member of the Abramson Cancer Center, and she serves as the physician leader for the clinical research program for airways malignancies. Dr. Agrawal is tasked by helping us uh, to understand what was really presented in thoracic oncology at this ASCO meeting that has really some clinical application. So looking forward to my discussion with Dr. Agarwal. And uh, of course, before I air the episode, uh, I want to make sure I plug the show. You can find the show on all podcast outlets. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, write a brief review, and refer some friends or colleagues to the show. Without further ado, Dr. Charu Agrawal on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure to have Dr. Sharu Agrawal on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Sharu, uh, uh, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. It's the first time we have you. So for folks who don't know you, just maybe a little bit about you uh, and uh, where you are and uh, tell us just a little bit about how what got you into thoracic oncology, because that's what we're going to talk about. Hi, Chabi. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I am a thoracic medical oncologist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Abramson Cancer Center. And I chose to pursue thoracic oncology because of the dearth of treatment options available for thoracic oncology at the time when I started fellowship. And look how far we've come. Um, You know, ASCO 2021 just happened. And we have so many new exciting therapies that are available. And, you know, we are charting new frontiers. I think this is going to be, this is going to continue to be an exciting field. And I'm so glad that I chose to be a thoracic oncologist. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I'd like to go back and do fellowship in thoracic oncology. I'm not actually, this is, I'm not really kidding. It's really, there's really a lot of excitement. Um, And by the way, for listeners, I also have a disclaimer. I truly tried to stop the notifications of my Outlook email. And I even shut it down. I did everything possible. It did not work, Charu. So sorry, listeners, you got to now realize how many emails I get during this episode. All right. So Charu, uh, this ASCO meeting 2021 is virtual. I promise we will host you in Chicago next year. It's going to be live. That's a promise. So I wanted listeners to know from the, from the brains of a thoracic oncologist to pick I don't know, three, four, five, six, whatever kind of quick snippets of abstracts or presentations 
that really made you think and pause that they have some clinical application or just made you wonder and intrigued you uh, enough that they stuck in your head? So number one. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most fascinating and the immediately practice changing presentation was the phase two trial called called Code Break 100 uh, that evaluated AMG 510, which is now called Sodorasib, which is the first in class oral therapy that is a selective and irreversible um, TKI for the previously undruggable KRAS G12C um, mutant uh, population. So in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer in the non-squamous setting, KRAS G12C accounts for about 13% of all cancer. So, you know, it's a sizable subset if you think about it in the in the bigger picture. Now we are thinking of at least 40% of our patients with metastatic non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer being potentially druggable. So I think this is uh, significant. But, you know, let me tell you about the results a little bit. So this code break 100 trial design was a single arm phase two trial. Patients had to have locally or locally advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, specifically with KRS G12C mutation after having failed one line of therapy. So two or three lines of therapy were allowed. Patients receive sodoracib at 960 milligrams once daily until progressive disease. And the first scan was done at six weeks. You know, the patient population was highly representative of what we expect for a trial such as this. Median age was about 63 and a half years. 81% of the patients had received uh, platinum either alone or in combination with PD-1 or PDL one drugs. 93% of the patients had some history of smoking and about 57% of the patients had received more than two lines of prior therapy. And what we saw was very interesting. The objective response rate in 124 patients that received drug was 37.1%. There were actually four complete responses with this drug, and most of them were partial responses. Disease control rate, when we include stable disease, was 80.6% in this heavily pretreated population for which there is no current other targeted therapy available. The first uh, or the median time to response was at the time of the first scan at about 1.3 months, which is you know, similar to the first scan, which is six weeks. And in the single arm trial, they reported a median progression-free survival of 6.8 months and median overall survival of 12 and a half months. I think this is immediately practice changing as these results were announced at the heels of uh, the FDA approval. So Duracib is now available and on the market, ready for us to write a prescription. The indication currently is for second line and beyond, KRAS G12C specific uh, indication. I think there are a couple of things important about this, uh, about these data as we think about precision therapy. You know, they looked at a very small subset of patients that had received prior immunotherapy, either an anti-PD-1 or PDL one very small subset, only 13 patients, but had not received prior platinum-based chemotherapy. And the overall response rate in those patients was 70% or close to 72%, 70% at 69.2%. And, you know, this is intriguing to me because currently in the first line setting we make decisions based on pdl1 status alone so you know theoretically if a patient presents to me with a pdl1 level of 50% or higher and has a krs mutation 
I think I'm more likely going to be uh, willing to give them immunotherapy alone and, you know, sort of save chemotherapy for later, also recognizing then maybe I'll get a higher response rate with the use of sotorasib following immunotherapy. I think, uh, Charlie, you're very interested in molecular subsets of non-small cell lung cancer, and this is one of my areas of interest. And, you know, we've been interested in finding uh, are there subsets or co-mutations that can, you know, predict for response to not just immunotherapy, but targeted therapy? And again, these numbers are small, but what Scolitis and colleagues showed us was that patients that have a STIC11 mutation in conjunction with a KRSG12C mutation tend to have a higher response rate at about 50%, which is not true for patients that have both stick 11 mutation and a KEEP1 mutation, where the response rate actually is inferior at 23%. Very small subsets, but I think intriguing data as, you know, I think it will have implications in sequencing of our therapies in the future. Um, I think underscores the importance of getting comprehensive comprehensive gene sequencing so that we can really position and choose the correct treatment. Yeah, very interesting. Charu, before I move to a second abstract, just a couple of just very two quick questions. So the KRS, in the first line, you have somebody with a first line disease, you still have the same prevalence of like 13%, 15% with the KRS uh, G12C. Are there studies trying to move the drug to the first line setting? It seems to me it's, you know, I mean, it's it's tough. Even I know it's a proof second line and beyond, but when you have somebody in the first line and you have this mutation, you're so tempted to use it, no? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, I think that prevalence definitely holds true across all uh, across all stage four um, non-small cell lung cancer patients, and trials are ongoing in combination alone, and I think. Um, I agree with you that even though, you know, the response rate of 37% sort of seems dissatisfying um, when we are used to seeing response rates in the 70, 80% range with other TKIs, but we have to remember this, this is a complex pathway. This is not an oncogene um, similar to EGFR or ALK. Um, but I, I agree with you that I think I would love to see this move into the first line setting. Okay. Number two. All right. So this to me is immediately practice changing, but, you know, we also saw some potentially practice changing data. And I think um, Empower 010, which is a study of immunotherapy in the, in the adjuvant setting, really, I think, uh, was sensational in my mind um, or in my opinion, because I think this is the first time that a study has shown that we can probably move immunotherapy up. You know, Charlie, we were just discussing, can we move these targeted therapies up in the into the first-line metastatic setting? But, you know, just to level set, we know that adjuvant chemotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer for stage two and three, uh, three disease provides overall survival benefit. But that overall survival benefit is relatively modest. I mean, the disease-free survival hazard ratio with adjuvant chemotherapy is about 0.8. And overall survival hazard ratio has been about 0.9, and it leads to a 4 to 5% overall improvement. And really what this study asked was, above and beyond what chemotherapy can offer us, will immunotherapy provide an incremental benefit for these patients? So this was a very large randomized phase three study, looked at completely resected patients with stage 1b to 3a, non-small cell lung cancer, and 
every patient had to receive uh, four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy, which was cisplatin-based. So they started with about 1,280 patients that were randomized to either receive atezolizumab for one year or uh, best supportive care. And they uh, eventually enrolled 1,005 patients that were followed for survival follow-up. Now, the primary endpoint was not all patients. It was DFS, which was investigator assessed in the PDL1 high, which was designed as uh, defined as more than or equal to 1% using the SP263 assay for the stage 2 to 3A population. And then they had other DFS primary endpoints, such as looking at the DFS in all randomized patients and then in the entire intent to treat population. So at ASCO, we, we saw that for the first time, use of adjuvant atezolizumab is associated with an improvement in DFS in the pre-specified population that was pdl one high as well as in stage two to three A, uh, and the DFS hazard ratio was 0.66, you know, 34% reduction in the risk of uh, relapse. I think, you know, this is the first time that we've seen adjuvant immunotherapy providing such a significant benefit in resected patients above and beyond chemotherapy. We don't have overall survival data yet. Um, the benefit was definitely higher in patients that had PDL1 greater than or equal to 50%, where the hazard ratio was 0.43. So my takeaway from this is, uh, you know, benefit is seen in our in, in PDL1 positive patients. They did not exclude patients with ALK or EGFR. Uh, however, when they looked at these patients, you know, if you look at the hazard ratios uh, for benefit, you know, they, they are not significant. So patients with ALK and EGFR don't seem to benefit with adjuvant atezolizumab. And as you know, we already have data on adjuvant osimortinib. Having said that, you know, will I consider this in a patient who has a smoking history, who has a very high PDL1? who has a PDL one level, let's say of 90%, I think I will. I, it really depends on when the FDA approval comes through, but I think the data are striking. You know, um, last ASCO, Sharu, as you know, um, the entire thoracic oncology community was talking about Adora, which is adjuvant osimertinib after resected lung cancer, and there was some update at ESMO as well, and so on. So now you have... And it was, I believe, adjuvant osimertinib was given after chemotherapy as well. Um, Correct. At least that part is okay. But now you have data with Adora and Empower. So when you have a patient, is your sense that if you have the EGFR mutation, then you do osimertinib? If they don't, I do a TISO. Is that how you're thinking? Or some other, like, would you, I don't know, would you still give after, I mean, OSI was three years. So I don't know. Tell us, how would you recon reconcile those two trials? Absolutely. So I think the key is uh, testing uh, for these molecular mutations. I think that's paramount uh, to help us make a decision about what we will do next. And compared to the stage four setting, I think we are not going to be as limited by lack of tissue because all of these patients have had surgical resection. So I think the tissue availability would not be such a limiting factor in making sure that we perform comprehensive testing. So firstly, I think that needs to be done. It's not being done uniformly at all centers. Secondly, I think, you know, osimertinib has an FDA approval already, so it's easier for me. I think Atezo is more of a theoretical conversation right now. But I think Let's say tomorrow, if the FDA approves 
adjuvant atezolizumab, in my practice, I will favor the use of targeted therapy for patients with an EGFR mutation. And for my patients that have a heavy smoking history, don't have an actionable mutation and have a high PDL one I would favor using one year of adjuvant immunotherapy. I think, you know, if we are going to improve our rates of cure, we don't have overall survival data yet, but I think it will probably translate that's, into... Uh, that's a whole can of worms. I, yeah. I don't think we're going to go into it today, but uh, I think that uh, it's really an important topic to discuss maybe in a future podcast and so on, because... I know there's a lot of arguments about uh, the difference of overall survival and disease-free survival. And, you know, I mean, you know, part of me not being a thoracic oncologist myself is, you know, the argument that you need to have overall survival benefit really centers on the fact that you believe any patient at the time of relapse or developing metastatic disease will have access to the same therapy that you would have given in the adjuvant setting. And I've taken enough uh, care of thoracic oncology patients where you can't really predict the volume and the burden of disease at the time of, of relapse, despite very careful monitoring. So I'm sympathetic to the view of sometimes you can't really show overall survival benefit and the DFS may be okay because you just don't know whether these patients at the time of developing metastases, can they actually take these same therapies. But I understand both arguments. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think for immunotherapy, the question or the discussion may be slightly different because I think if we are beginning to see a tail of the curve, I'm more likely to think that that will translate into an overall survival benefit, whereas for targeted therapy, things may be viewed a little bit differently. But speaking of immunotherapy, I think there were a couple of other abstracts that were practice affirming, uh, you know, if not practice changing or potentially practice changing, you know, in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer for the non-targetable subset, currently we have clear pathways for treatment. For example, if somebody has a PDL one greater than or equal to 50%, usually all of us agree that you can use monotherapy, monotherapy with Pembro or Atezol, or in certain select cases, you can use chemoimmunotherapy. And if patients are PDL1 negative, usually the consensus is that you will treat them with chemo IO. However, for this in-between 1% to 49% group, there is no current consensus. You know, we have Keynote 189 and Keynote 407 showing us an improvement of chemoimmunotherapy over chemo. But we also have Keynote 42 showing us a benefit of immunotherapy over chemo. So we don't really know if chemotherapy over immunotherapy is better or vice versa. So what the FDA tried to do was really to do uh, an analysis uh, from the trials. So they basically conducted a meta-analysis in this 1% to 49% with the exploratory question being, is chemoimmunotherapy superior to immunotherapy for this population? And are there differences in overall survival and progression-free survival? They evaluated eight such trials for an overall of 2,100 patients. And they pooled these uh, data from these um, randomized controlled trials. What they showed was interesting. They showed that overall survival for the 1% to 49% population in this pooled analysis was better for chemoimmunotherapy with a median of 21.4 months compared to IO alone, which was only 14 and a half months. And I think this data is 
is helpful to me because it confirms my current practice of using triplet in the 1 to 49% population. They also showed that there was no evidence that patients above the age of 75 had worse outcomes with chemoimmunotherapy compared to less than 75 years of age. I think this is important in a large analysis that, you know, if performance status is not an issue, if patients are otherwise healthy, that we should not hold that hold additional chemotherapy just on the basis of age. And then I think it, again, underscores the importance of really identifying subsets of patients that may benefit from immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. So I thought this was a good abstract for me because it just confirmed our current practice. And I think we need to, in the future, define is there a KRS mutant patient, for example, that, that should receive only IO so that their subsequent treatment may may be associated with a higher response rate. I don't know. I think we need to think about this in the bigger picture. I, I was a little bit surprised that the FDA did this analysis. I, uh, it's, uh, uh, I recall, I think I probably listened to this oral presentation. I was thinking, I don't remember the last time there was an FDA officer that was, uh, give, I mean, was this surprising to you that it was the FDA that initiated that type of uh, analysis? You know, I think FDA is becoming more and more academic, which I love because, you know, they they do have access to all of these data sets, which we would not have otherwise. And I think, you know, no industry partner would actually want to do this kind of an analysis. I think the FDA is taking, taking it upon themselves to do this, and I applaud them for it. Yeah. No, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, you said you have another another abstract that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. So in the last five to eight minutes, um, I think talking, staying on this, on the topic of immunotherapy, we saw five-year updates from Pacific. So Chadi, you know, Pacific was the landmark phase three trial that really established the role of consolidation immunotherapy with one year of Dervalumab following concurrent chemoradiation for unresectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer. And initially when this trial was presented, we only saw PFS data. And then subsequently we saw an overall survival advantage for these patients, really establishing this as standard of care. All patients receive it now. Uh, and Dervalumab is administered, you know, for, for 12 months. So this year we saw five-year update of Pacific. And I was just thrilled to see that even at this long follow-up, you know, 60-month follow-up, we are seeing an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.72. You know, 42.5% of the patients were alive at five years, which is significantly better than what we've seen historically and also significantly better than what was seen on the placebo arm, which was 33.4%. And the same um, for progression-free survival, a hazard ratio of 0.55. I think this is spectacular data for the use of immunotherapy. Again, I think this gives us maybe uh, a slight glimpse into what adjuvant immunotherapy may look like, because this is sort of the similar setting, uh, except that it's in unresectable patients. But I think many questions still remain. For example, you know, in the US, uh, we have approval for Dervalumab in all patients, but in, in Europe, 
it's only approved for PDL1 positive patients. So, you know, should we continue to treat patients with PDL1 negative disease? And then should patients with EGFR mutation or ALK translocation get adjuvant, sorry, consolidation durvalumab? I think there are many questions. And then finally, we also saw trial data being presented of concurrent chemoimmunotherapy with radiation. So sort of like the kitchen sink approach uh, where immunotherapy is not just incorporated in the consolidation setting, but is basically grafted on with chemo RT for unresectable patients. And will that replace the current standard, I think, remains to be seen. I love the idea. It was five-year updates and it was presented. I'm a little bit depressed. It's been five years. I feel it was like yesterday. I can't believe it's five years, honestly. Like, I, I feel like people were just discussing the Pacific trial just, you know, last year. This goes to show how fast we're aging, Chadia. I, I agree with you. It feels like yesterday. Yeah, I'm not sure you're aging, but I am for sure. But uh, um, Sharu, you mentioned a couple of things. Um, before I let you go, there's one, one abstract that I saw, I thought it was intriguing, and I'd like to get your take on it, because you mentioned the importance of genomic sequencing. And, and I think you saw the abstract that was presented by the U.S. Oncology Network, where they looked at, you know, I'm talking about, they looked at the five biomarkers and really actionable biomarkers. I mean, they're not necessarily non-actionable. And they were trying, I think they, I, I forgot, but I believe they looked at the EHR and they tried to look at how often patients were being, they were testing, being tested. And less than 50% of these uh, are, are, are being tested. Um, disp- I mean, some of them are EGFR and ALK, like you, I mean, I was like reading this, I'm thinking this is pretty strange. So, I mean, I, I know obviously your views and, and you're an academician and a researcher, but there's a gap. There's something missing clearly that either the message is not being conveyed or whatever it is. Can you elaborate on this and tell us what you think and any thoughts how you change things? Yeah, so I thought that this abstract as well as the flat iron analysis that looked at racial disparities and molecular testing, which basically showed the same data that only 50% of the population is getting tested. I thought that these were really depressing and striking results because I would I would think that since lung cancer is the poster child for targeted therapies, we've made so many advances that people would be adopting testing and that this would be standard practice. And on top of that, you know, I think U.S. oncology is a very algorithm-based you know, sort of network where, you know, it might be easier in a way to begin comprehensive next generation sequencing or testing because of established pathways of where the tissue gets sent and processed and tested. So I I thought that these data were very striking. Um, I think we clearly can do better. I think gone are the days when we should be testing for one, two, or five biomarkers. I think we should be doing comprehensive testing. And you, of course, being at Keras, know the importance of testing. I don't know where the gaps are. Uh, I doubt that there is one point. I think it's a multi-pronged sort of systems issue that stems from, you know, patients need to get treated quickly. They're very sick. Um, You know, there's no time to wait. Providers are feeling the crunch of, of initiating therapy fast. I think, you know, tissue availability is, is an issue always. And, you know, I think the turnaround time, to be honest with you, you know, if it takes two and a half weeks to get the results back, nobody has that time to wait. I doubt that any of this has to do with 
really the knowledge. I think oncologists are trying really hard uh, to to sequence their patients and to test their patients. So I don't think this is ignorance or lack of education, but I do think that this is, you know, just inherently challenging to get sequencing on tissue that may not be available. I would have liked to see a little bit more granularity on that data regarding the use of liquid biopsies. It was descriptive. Was really of... descriptive. Well, it was descriptive, yeah, yeah, yeah. but intriguing. Exactly. It was intriguing, but I think we can do so much better. Yeah, yeah. Well... Uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully uh, next year when we see you in person, we'll be able to have uh, different data. I, I thought this was very intriguing. Sharu, uh, as always, thank you for being so concise. There's a, It's really exciting. And I don't say this lightly, really thoracic oncology field has been uh, unbelievable. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's been crazy over the past couple of years. It's always good for patients, obviously. It's also good because you as a researcher and as an academician, you start thinking, what do I do next and what could be the next trial? So appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. This was uh, fun. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you tuning in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. And thanks, Dr. Sharu Agrawal, for updating us on advances and new data from the ASCO 2021 specific focus on thoracic oncology. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. Refer a friend or a colleague. And also, let me know how we're doing. Provide any suggestions or ideas. You can always direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or email me at cnabhan at carisls.com. Thank you so much. And until next time, take care.